All right. Well, once again, I want to welcome everybody here tonight and all those listening on our podcast channel as well. A quick recap from last week's teaching where we learned from Pastor Craig, excuse me, that God is full of love and grace, but to all those who disobey his command, God's command, uh, there is, we will have to give an account for our sins, but through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness. That was the point. Tonight, we're going to continue with our study of Exodus, and we're going to go into Exodus chapter 34. So if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 34. We're going to start off at verse 10 and just work our way straight through to the end of the chapter. Okay? Exodus 34, verse 10. So the first two verses for tonight, the ones we're going to just jump right into are verses 10 and 11. And they really set the tone for what we're going to read, for where we're going throughout the rest of the chapter. And there's certainly, certainly a lot to come. So I want to look at these two verses because, they, again, they really kind of give us an idea of what's, gonna, what's coming and what God wants the Israelites to know. So verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. The people who live among you will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Okay, so there's a couple big things happening, and we need to understand what's going on before we can go further. Right? Now, the first thing we need to really understand is, number one, is that God is making a covenant with the Israelites. Right? He is making it with them. They are not making it with him. They're not at a table negotiating back and forth. I'm going to do this. No, you're gonna do. God says, this is my covenant. These are my terms. This is what's happening. Right? He's just laying it out there. This is what it's about. I'm making the covenant, covenant with you. This is what you're going to be held to. Next, he says, part of this agreement, this is where it's cool, part of this agreement means that I'm going to do wonders that have never been done in any nation in the world. So God's not going to do stuff that's already been done just bigger and better, right? He's not going to take, we walked across the Red Sea, now we're going to do the Atlantic. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, what we are going to do, what I'm going to do through you, what the other nations are going to see is going to be enormous, bigger, better. People have never seen this before. God's almost giving them a challenge. Like, think of everything you've ever heard of. This is going to be bigger than that, Right? These aren't going to be legends. These aren't going to be tall tales and myths. These are things that are actually going to happen. You're going to see them. The nations around you are going to see this. And God says, the people who live among you, they will see how awesome is the work that I'm going to do for you. So the nations around you are going to see this. They're going to know, and I mean know, this is key, that I did this. But the works I do are awesome. Now here's a catch, though. When God says the people will see the awesome works that I do, some Bible translations, depending on what you have, will also sometimes use the word terrible, fearful. And the reason I bring this up, because in the, in the United States right now, the word awesome, I use it right, my kids, what? It means, did you see that home run? That was awesome. Do you see that antique Corvette go by? Oh, that was awesome. Right? Yeah. It means something very specific in our modern day Language, I mean, just good is very impressive. In the Bible, you can also replace that in some cases with the word terrible, fearful. That means God meant business. It wasn't just that he was going to be doing miracles and raining blessings down on the Israelites. It's things that were going to impress the neighbors. He was going to do terrible and awesome things, fearful things to them that the nations around them would see and they would stand back in awe and say, this God is real. 
this God means business. So God was going to do powerful things for their benefit, but he also knew the Israelites were going to misbehave and totally do things awful, and he was going to punish them, and the neighboring nations would see that. And they would stand in awe. So there's a good awe and there's a bad awe um, in what he's talking about. But God's point was the, everyone's going to see this, and they're going to know that he is God. He's going to use the Israelites in both ways. Now, next, God tells the Israelites, he just says very bluntly, you will obey the commands that I give you today. This is not, this is not an instruction. This is not something you can you know, kind of figure out if you want to keep part of it. There are going to be penalties if you don't keep this. So see, what God's doing is setting the stage for what's about to come. This, this is God's mindset, his expectation for the rest of the chapter, the stuff that we're going to read. This is what I want to... Uh, have you guys keep in mind? He's saying, these, this is my covenant. This, these are my rules. The world is going to see this. So now let's look at his commands. And we do, let's look at what God's specifically telling them to do. And as we read it together, I want you to think about it because you're going to see there's two main ideas at the heart of what everything God is commanding them. Right? It's going to be verses 12 to 17. He says, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land who, who, where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their sheriff holes. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make any idols. So within all those commands, there's, there's really two main ideas God wants them to know. They are to separate themselves completely from all the nations around them. No matter what happens, he wants them to keep a very solid religious and cultural barrier between them. No treaties, no intermarrying, no picnics, golf outings. You guys are completely separate. This is, he, he's very serious. I want a complete religious cultural wall between you guys. That's what I want. The second thing God is commanding, and it's through the uh, command for no idolatry. This means that all the uh, idols that the other people have, their altars, everything must be torn down. It's not okay to have an idol or statue or anything anywhere near you. They can't say, well, it's over there. Let's just leave it alone. What did God say? Tear it down. Smash it. Pound it to dust. It's not okay just to even push it over, break it to pieces. Simply by it existing, it is an affront to God. And the reason God gives for this is simply by existing, they are going to be a snare. Someone is going to get pulled into that. God's plan is too great. His people are too valuable. What he wants to do with the world, he's not going to risk anything of that. He wants them to get rid of all the idols. Now next, God completely switches gears. And he gives instructions on which holidays the people are required to keep. And you're going to notice it's not just celebrate, for instance, July 4th. Do whatever you want, but this is a holiday. He gives them the holiday and then tells them what they are to do, right? It's very specific. It's verse 18. Let's read that now. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time of the month, of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. 
So in this holiday, they're to celebrate. It's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Why? Because that's what they're going to eat the whole time. For a period of seven days, they're to eat bread without yeast. And it's to commemorate for them to remember what he did for them in Egypt when they were kicked out of Egypt. More specifically, what happens is the final day they were uh, kicked out by the Pharaoh, they didn't have enough time to sit down and, and make bread, you know, to get the dough, the flour, put the yeast in, let it sit for whatever, an hour or two, then cook it up. They had minutes. And I actually looked it up. To make unleavened bread can take as little as 18 minutes. So they were in a hurry. They needed to go. They used the bare essentials, and they probably ate it on their way out. And this week-long celebration, for seven days they do this, remembers that event. And this is important because God never wants them to forget what he did for them. He rescued them for, from slavery. Right? And this is a really, really good, easy way to remember that by sharing this meal for seven days, year after year after year. And that's the reason. This is what's interesting. This is why God gets so specific sometimes. Because we people have a tendency to put our fingerprints all over everything, don't we? It's very common. We add things to it. We take them away. We change them around. I mean, we don't personally do that today, right? We don't do that. Do we have a holiday where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and include a large rabbit? Where we hide eggs and then teach our kids to go find those eggs and eat lots of candy because it reminds us of the cross? Do we celebrate Jesus' birth on a day in late December that the pagans were already celebrating a holiday and then say, okay, now you're going to celebrate Jesus this day. But over time, what did we do? We added an obese, an obese Norwegian guy with a beard and said, hey, kids, he comes down the chimney, everybody's chimney, and brings presents. And you have to be good because if you're bad, he's not going to bring you presents. And of course, all that reminds us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? You can pick up on my sarcasm. We totally do that. Now, we here would say we don't do that, but I want you to think about it. Think about somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. If you went and asked everybody who didn't know Jesus Christ, tell me about Christmas. Tell me about Easter. What are they going to tell you? Christmas in particular. Well, there's a Christmas tree, there's presents, there's lights. One of the last things you're going to hear is about Jesus, the Messiah of the world, was born in Bethlehem. So that's why God is so specific. He, he, he needs it to be that way. Now, going back to verse 18, uh, for a second, God instructs the Israelites to celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread during the month of Aviv. Now, the word month is actually a rough translation because really it's better translated as a season. For us, the word month means something very specific in our Gregorian calendar. You know, January, February, March, April. For them, the Israelites, the season of Aviv was act in Hebrew. It literally, literally means the greening season, the ripening season. And that's when the barley ripened during that time. And during that time of year, it's roughly February, March, April, or April, or March, April, May. So it's in that spring season. So when you see the word Aviv, it's really describing a three-month season. But that's when, the time of the year, when they left Egypt. Now next, God's going to continue with the law. And what he's going to give them, we're going to see that he, he moves from this holiday to instructions on the firstborn, which days of the week to work, another festival he brings in there. And then he even describes how often the men are to go to the temple. Right. So God gets very specific. Let's read that. It's going to be verse 19 all the way down to 24. The first offering 
excuse me, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or from the flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with the lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Look what he says. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turning of the year. Three times a year, three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 24, he says, I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you come up three times each year to appear before the Lord. So the first command in this section tells us that the firstborn belongs to God. Now in those days, the firstborn was seen as the more valuable, the more important, right? So what God was doing was laying claim to what was seen as the most important. The point here is, what he was saying is everything they have, I mean everything, to, down to their animals, their birds, their flock, whatever, the firstborn belongs to him. Their very freedom, their livelihoods, their lives, God gave them. He, he, he got them out of uh, Egypt. He gives them this life. What he wants in return is their firstborn, something of great value. Because, and if you think of it like this, if you're willing to give God your Firstborn, your most expensive, the first calf that's born, the best one. If you're willing to do that, then he's truly important to you. He matters to you. If you're going to hide that and keep that for yourself, God's not first in your life. Now, for example, remember, this is, it really applies to Remember the story with Jesus where the rich young ruler, this guy with all the money, runs up to Jesus and says, I've kept all the commands. I've just nailed them. What else do I need to do to get in? Eternal life. What else do I need to do, right? I've done everything great. Jesus responds with exactly what he needs to hear. He says, you need to sell everything. I mean everything. Sell it. And then I want you to give it to the poor, you know, the people who you probably think deserve where they're at. You give it to them. Then you come with me. Come with me. And what is the, what is the story? How does it go? What's the rich man do? He walks away sad. He walks. Now, let me rephrase this because this is one of the. I, I would love for someone like Steven Spielberg to really direct this scene because I don't think we get how powerful this is. Let, let me just, let's just go there in our mind. This young man experienced something we will never experience ourselves in this lifetime. He had a chance to talk to Jesus. Let's say Jesus is standing right here. He walked, just walked right up to him. And he had a few minutes with him. He would have been as close as I am to this gentleman right here. He could tell if I haven't. He could tell if Jesus needed to shave. He could tell if he had a little spaghetti on his shirt, right? Whatever. He had a chance to look him dead in the eye. He would have known what Jesus smelled like. What it sounded like when he breathed in and out. Was he tall? Was he short? Was he right about here? What was he? He could ask him anything. He could have gave him a hug. He, he had the opportunity to just exist right in front of Jesus. You and I will never get that in this lifetime the way he did. He had a chance to just 
follow Jesus. Jesus said, come with me. And what did he do? He chose his money over Jesus. He did. He walked away. And it made him sad. But he still did it. He just kept going. So what Jesus did with this rich man was just like what God was doing with the Israelites, with this firstborn command. He's saying, give me what's the most valuable. Let it go. Trust me. He was giving them a chance to make their own decision, to give, them some, give him something that is truly of value. And it's not a figurative. It's not like, well, I agree in theory, but I'm still going to. No. You need to give it. You need to do this. Give up the firstborn of all your livestock. Now, does anybody here raise livestock? Yeah, not many. All right? Yeah, a little bit. Me too. <laughs> I want you to go back 3,500 years. That was everything to you. That's how you got your life. That's how you fed your family. You got up early. You fed them. You smelled like them. You, all that stuff. You defended them from wildlife. Like, you, like I have goats. There's no risk of any tigers or lions coming out and eating my goats right? Where they were, there was. You had to defend them. And then you had a God that said, give me the best ones. That took faith and trust to give them up because you're going, that's what God was wanting. It's a choice they had to make. There's no way around it. Now let's read verse 20 because this all starts to build on each other. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, what's it say? Break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. That means buy them back. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Now this is tough. This is a tall order. God says, give me the firstborn of all. No one is is to appear before me empty-handed. This is serious. Again, he doesn't say the rich pay more and, hey, if you can't do it, I'll get you next time around. God says, no, no, no. No one appears empty-handed. Everybody has something to give. Everybody. There's no loophole. There's no way around it. God is saying, I saved you from Israel. I am your God. I will take care of you. This is a requirement. Now, this is where I, I think this is where it really gets interesting. And this even applies today because we are so busy today. Verse 21. Six days you shall labor. Six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And if you know any farmers, we're from the Midwest. This, this next part's the hardest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest season, you must rest. Anybody know farmers who work continuously certain times of the year? Why do they do that? They're not trying to be, let's be fair to them, they're not trying to be respectful to anybody. What? It matters. There's a lot of money. It's a lot of food. And that's nowadays. Think about back then. There you go. The cows, man, the cows. But the truth is, it, 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 it matters. And 3,500 years ago, if you didn't do it at the right time and you missed it, or what, you didn't eat. Your family didn't eat. This was a big deal. And I don't want you to jump off too quickly here because there's really a big promise in here. When God says one day a week, don't work. What God, what God was saying is, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me no matter what. He was commanding one nation to do this, not the whole world. To trust him no matter what. 
that I will take care of you. You will be okay. Every six days, take the next day off. He wanted them to spend that day with their family, with him. He was building in a PTO day 3,500 years ago. That's exactly what it is. And he was saying, I want you to trust me. I know no one else in the world does it. And it's going to seem crazy and dangerous. But if you do this, I will take care of you. Trust me. Spend every seventh day with me. It's a promise of protection. Now let's read into verses 22 and 24. And he's going to do more with that. Verse 22, celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out the nations before you in larger territory and no one will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. So this is interesting. God's giving them more holidays to celebrate. The festival of weeks, it's a celebration of the wheat festival, the, the, the wheat harvest, where all the men were required to go to Jerusalem and bring a portion, their best portion with them as an offering. The festival of ingathering was a festival at the end of the harvest when all their storerooms, their bar bins, everything was full. They were to bring the, the best then as well. And they were required to come before God. So this meant, I want you to stick with me here, this meant that at least three times a year, all the men, everyone, all the men here, raise your hand. Every one of you had to go to Jerusalem three times a year. You think, oh, that sounds nice. But look what God said I will, in verse 24. I will drive out your nations before you in a larger territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up. If you were one of Israel's enemies, what would be the best time to attack the farms? the homesteads, because you know when it's going to happen. Three times a year, all the fighting men are going to be where? Miles and miles away. Nobody is going to be able to protect. So the men are naturally going to want to stay behind and go, yeah, but it's not just my family and kids. It's, it's them, but it's everything. I'll lose everything. God, what does God say? Trust me. Do this. No one is even going to, what is the word covet? No one's going to want to even do that. I'm going to be there for you. I will take care of you. Now go do this. See, that is huge. That is enormous. God says, I'm going to take care of you. Your lands will be, will be safe. So not only, not only do we have a God who's giving them one vacation day every six days, he's going to provide protection for their families, their farms, their fields, while they go worship him in Jerusalem. This is a real relationship. This is not a God giving out random, harsh stuff, laws that are difficult. He's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to trust me, and I will help you. I will be there for you. He's trying to build a trusting relationship. Now, the next few commands from God, which are verses 25 and 26, give some directions on these sacrifices and how they're to be handled. Start at verse 25. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. And do not let any sacrifice from the Passover festival remain until morning. Bring the best of your first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God, and do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. 
So again, there's a command about no yeast. The reason God regularly commands them not to use yeast is, number one, it's a reminder of what happened in Egypt when they were freed. But also, yeast represents sin. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see that a lot. And that's what he's talking about. It's not just get rid of the yeast. It's always a bigger purpose because people are separated from God because of their sin. So all this stuff is about trying to get them right with God. It's about purity. God is holy. His people are not. And all his efforts are directed at bringing them back to him and removing their sin. Now the final command in there, not to cook a young goat in its mother's milk, is actually referring to an old pagan fertility rite that they did that was very common back then. So God is saying, listen, this, and this would have made total sense to them. To us, it's like, what? Back then, they all knew what that was. And he's saying, this is very common. You are not to do it. You have nothing to do with this because of what it means back then. You are my people. You will put your trust in me. Now, verses 27 and 28, they begin to round out this chapter. Uh, Let's read them and they'll see what I mean. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So God gave Moses, he actually commanded him to write these down. This is a big deal back then because very, very few people were literate back then. So why would he command Moses to do something 99.99999% of the people can't even read anyway? You ever think about that? Why would he do that? It's because he wanted his commands to never be forgotten. He wanted them to be passed down, not just to the kids, but to the grandkids, kids, and for, for thousands of years later. He wanted them literally in stone so people knew about them. Again, think about how, what we do with Christmas and Easter these days. Like I said, go, go take a random sample of 100 people and just ask them, hey, tell me about Christmas. What do you know? You know, one of the last things, if you're lucky, you're going to get, someone's going to be like, oh, it's about Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world, was born that day. It's going to be all this other stuff, right? That's what we do. That's what's common. So that's why God commanded to write these commandments down. He didn't want them changed. He didn't want them forgotten. Now next, the text reminds us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with no food or water. And it's here, it's at that time that he received the commandments. Now the final part of our chapter, verses 29 to 35, describes what happens when Moses comes down the mountain, and this is where it gets interesting, it's going to describe how God's presence, simply Moses being that present to God, physically changes Moses. Now as we read this, again, think like Steven Spielberg, how we do it. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Right? What it have looked like. Moses was their leader. He was one of them. He led them out of Egypt. He was God's chosen intermediary, but he was still very much a man. Like all of them, he's on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, getting the laws. And at some point, they're expecting him just to come waltzing right back down, right? Maybe some stone tablets in his hand. And that's it. Let's read and see what happens. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, what's it say? He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israel, all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them, which is what you do to someone who ran away from you, called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community did what? They came back, which means they ran away. And then he spoke to them. Now again, this is one of those things. Steven Spielberg just just do such a good job. Moses coming down the mountain. I'm him. Right? Ten Commandments. Yes, this is how Moses would walk. You know, it's, it's very common back then. Looking good, you know, and everybody's thinking he's going to look normal. Maybe he just needs to shave. He's been gone a long time, all right? Gets near the camp. Remember, not a stranger. He looks like all, one of us. But then you realize there is something very, very different about him. He's glowing. And I don't mean like a lady who's pregnant, you know, pretty, you know, ooh and ah. He's glowing like an alien where people run in terror. His own brother, Aaron, hightails it out of there. They're genuinely scared of him. Now, this is the perfect time to bring up, think of the other stories from the Bible where someone encounters an angel. Now, we tend to think today, oh, there'd be a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, just be, if you really read what happens, you know, some people think when they think of an angel, they think of like when they see a greeting card, they're like, oh, there's an angel, or those little porcelain hummels and everything. So, oh, they're cute. And, if you really read what happens, it's a terrifying experience for the people. Every time an angel has to say what? Do not. Prefer. Why would an angel have to tell you that? Because you're afraid. It's terrifying. Because in an instant, you realize you're right before something that is way unbelievably more powerful than you that you've never experienced, and you have nowhere to run, and it's scary. So it's kind of like that. Moses is not an angel. I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is it was a very shocking experience because when Moses enters the camp, the camp runs away. He has to call out to them. I'm not calling out to any of you, am I? If I have to call out to you, that means you're on the other side of 512. I'm not joking. And then they start to come back. So this is one of those things. He was, and this is, we're going to get to that why this is so important. At this point, the people come back and Moses starts to give them the commands, the commands that God gave him. And if you, and we, you read a little bit more, the few next verses uh, to the end of the chapter, you're going to read how when Moses stood before the people, he actually ended up having to put a veil over his face to cover it because they were so scared. They couldn't get out of their minds. So he's like, listen, I'll solve this problem. Bloop. And then it says when he'd go back before the Lord, he'd take it off. And then when he'd come out, he'd have to put it back on again. So this is why this matters. And this is more importantly why this, this part of the story is even in the Bible. The purpose of God choosing the Israelites was to begin a process of redeeming this world. Why do we need to be redeemed? Because we're sinful. We contain sin. We are unholy. And God is the exact opposite. He is the epitome. He is perfection. He knows no sin. He literally glows with holiness. And just by Moses being in his presence for a short period, took on some of that glowing, that holiness. And it terrified the people because they realized how unholy, how separate they were from God. It physically scared them. They didn't want to be in that presence of Moses. They needed to run away. So what God was doing then, when he gave them the law, he's giving them the blueprint for why they're unholy, why they're sinful. And he starts giving them commands about what festivals to celebrate so they can remember God, what animals to sacrifice, 
One day off a week I want you to spend with me. Because when the people realized, again, their sinfulness was so great, they were scared. Remember, that was a very real uh, fear. Because remember, they're the, holy, the holiest parts of the temple where the people allowed, was anybody allowed to just go touch the Ark of the Covenant? No. Why? Because you would die. There were areas of the temple nobody could go into except for the high priest once a year after a whole big ritual. Why? Because what would even happen to him? He would die. Because we are so sinful. Moses was the intermediary. He was the beginning of this process. And this is where it's going to lead to Jesus. This is why it's important. Jesus took on all of our sin. All of that fear, that shame, everything that caused those people to run, want to run and actually run away from Moses, Jesus came into this world and took all that on. He says, I'm doing that for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to pay that price so you will never know that shame, that embarrassment, that feeling of needing to run. Have any of you ever felt you have to run from God? We've known sin to some degree, right? Embarrassed. But we will never feel the way they felt. You know why? Because we have Jesus Christ. Jesus, that's why we call it the good news. His message brings joy, happiness, and it rescues people from that fear, that sense of hopelessness, and that darkness. That's why Jesus said multiple times, I am the light of the world. He compared people who kept their sin and didn't know him as being blind. And the exact opposite side of that is the light that Jesus brings. It opens us up. The good news is meant to draw people to Jesus Christ. And through him, we are not condemned. We are forgiven. You know, and in a, in a really poetic event that happened during Jesus' ministry, you know, that story where there's a woman who's caught in adultery and she's dragged out before everybody and they all pick up stones and they're about to stone her to death, right? The truth is, the law said she should be stoned. She was guilty, right? And what could she say? She was caught, can you imagine how frightened and how terrified she would be? She was drug out in front of her whole community. She wasn't going to be taken to the edge of town where no one would see it. They were going to do it where? Right there. And everybody had a stone to throw at her and take her life. What a horrible way to go. But Jesus, the Messiah, the one who brings light, used the same law that convicted her, and she was guilty, to convict everybody else. He says, you are all guilty. None of you has the right to throw the stone. None of you condemn her. If you are, if you're holy, go for it. If you're not, you can't. And everyone started dropping their stones. And then he turned to her and said, there is a better way. Leave your life of sin. He pulled her from that dark place. He rescued her. The purpose of Jesus was to do what the law couldn't, which is to save us. The law convicts us. It shows us our sin. It shows us how awful we are. And Jesus is the exact opposite, and he rescues us from that. That's why Jesus is so great. That's why his message is called the good news. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, tonight we learned, we learned how the law convicts us and how our sin separates from you, separates us. We also saw tonight 
how that separation, how holy you are and how, how unholy we are, it can be scary, especially when we come face to face with it. But in light of all of that, Father, we, we have every reason to be thankful because we have Jesus, because you sent your Son. We thank you with all of our hearts for the work that Jesus did to remove our sin. Because of him, we no longer have to be afraid, shameful, or live in fear. Because of him, the separation between us is removed. We have hope and joy and peace. And because of him, we have a place with you in heaven. Father, we love you. We honor you. We thank you for the work that you did with the Israelites, for giving us the law, sending your son, sending the disciples. We thank you for all the work you did to redeem us. We love you. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.